You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Our passage this morning will be from John chapter 19, 16 to 37. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, and Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom, so they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold, your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so, uh, so thankful for the cross, so thankful for what has been done for us through the sacrifice of your son. So I pray now, Lord, for this church, I pray now for everyone in this building, God, as we work through this passage, God, I pray, Lord, that it will provoke our hearts and our minds, God, into greater worship of you. I pray, God, that it will not be stale to us, Lord, and I pray that nothing that is said here today is not honoring to you, Lord. 
So I pray for each one of us, God, bring conviction where conviction needs to be had, Lord, and bring encouragement, exhortation in the cross where we desperately need it, God. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, my name's Carter. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm really excited to get to, pa- uh, to walk through this passage with all of you today. Um, John has been a great book that we've walked through, um, and I love preaching. I love walking through narratives in general. And one of the reasons I love going through narratives is we are so familiar with them, right? We understand as things build up, we understand that they come eventually to a climax. And this is where we're at in the story of the narrative of Jesus and John's gospel. We're reaching the climax. All the things that have been built up to this point, and we're arriving at the climax of what John has been building us towards. Jesus' death and his coming resurrection. So I want to recap real quick with you guys about how we've gotten here, what Jesus has done. Because again, like this is a story of Jesus. And so we've seen Jesus heal people. We've seen many miracles performed. We've seen him feed the masses, forgive sin, challenge the authorities of the day. We've seen him come into Jerusalem on the donkey, seen scripture fulfilled through him. And then we get to this place in the story that we've become kind of just so used to in our Christian worlds, right? It's foundational to our belief that Christ died for our sins on, our, on the cross. And so what we end up doing is we stop being shocked by it. We stop really letting it weigh on us, the tragedy of the cross. And so my goal for us today, as we walk through this, is that we cannot make the cross uh, stale. We cannot make it mundane or normal, because it's not. But instead, I want us to make the cross common in our lives. Meaning I want us to think upon the cross often. I want us to, to chew on it. Because I think what, what I notice in my own life and a lot of people's lives that I talk to is the foundational beliefs we have as Christians, right? The atonement on the cross, the resurrection, the Trinity. These foundational beliefs, because they're so foundational to us, what we end up doing is we almost inadvertently skip over them in our, in our lives, As we read through scripture, I'm not going to change anything I believe about that. So let me jump to this other thing, this thing that's maybe more debated, where there's more nuance to it. And what we end up happening is we say, I'm not going to touch the cross. I'm not going to change my beliefs about the cross. And so let me put that over here on the shelf. And what ends up happening is it gets dusty. We stop meditating on the cross. But the reason why the cross and these other beliefs of our faith are so foundational is because this is what will drive true worship, true life in Jesus. And so my, my petition for each one of us in here today is that as we walk through a story that you've probably read thousands of times if you've grown up in the church, that you will not tune out, but you will truly consider the cross. And we're going to consider three things about the cross specifically. The tragedy of the cross the necessity of the cross, and the comfort of the cross. So with that said, we're going to start reading in in verse 16. And like I said, the first point, the first thing we're going to look at, we're going to consider is the tragedy of the cross. Verse 16, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So the cross, first and foremost, is tragic because it's simply gruesome. It's gruesome and dishonorable. This would be true of anyone that had to endure the cross. It's tragic because it is so absolutely horrifically gruesome. 
And so I want to talk through kind of what the process of the crucifixion for within the Roman society would have been, the Roman crucifixion. What would have happened to Jesus first, what we read within this text, is Jesus would have been scourged, meaning that he would have had the, the clothes behind his, the clothes on his back and his legs taken off, ripped off, and he would have been whipped with a special type of whip called cat o' nine tails. And on this whip is an attachment, uh, glass, bone, metal, with the intention of ripping into the skin and tearing it off. This is what would have happened. This is what did happen to Jesus. Two soldiers standing side by side, side, by side taking turns with their whip, whipping into the back of Jesus' back and his legs to the point where pieces of his body literally would have been hanging off of him. That's tragic. And after Christ would have been whipped, he would have been humiliated. He's walking naked, forced to carry what we just read, his own cross to the place where he's going to continue in his torture and his coming death. As he gets to the place and they set up the beams, they would have driven like seven-inch nails into his hands and to his feet. And as we read in verse 18, where is he hung? He's hung between two criminals, right in the middle of them, as if to show he's the chief perpetrator of the, of the three of them, the most deserving of the cross. See, the Romans, they knew what they were doing. It wasn't just the torture of pain. It was a torture of shame also. What happened to Christ on the cross 2,000 years ago was absolutely tragic because it both was pain he didn't deserve, but it also was shame that he didn't deserve. And then in verse 19, what did we read? We read that Pilate writes the inscription that Jesus is king. And this is both in purpose, as two purposes, both to mock the Jews and to mock Jesus. Essentially, Pilate is saying, look what Rome can do to the greatest of yours. But little did Pilate know that by the providence of God, he had inadvertently been a herald of Christ's coming kingdom. And so Christ is hanging there on the cross, the nails driven through his hands and his feet. His voice is broken from screaming from pain. And he's struggling for every single breath, needing to push up on the very nails that are driven into his body just to take it. And then what do we see? We see that uh, he... He asks, he says, I thirst, as John said, is to fulfill the scriptures, right? Which we're going to get into in a little bit. And what would he have been given? He would have been given the sponge, essentially what the soldiers would have used to clean themselves to give him the sour wine to drink. And so I want us to consider this for a moment. This is horrific for anyone. If we were to see anyone we know go through this, whether it's someone you dislike, whether it's someone you hate, whether it's someone you love, anyone going through this, it would be horrific. We would be hard-pressed to actually watch this. It'd be almost impossible to really look upon it. But hear me out. The pain, the violence, the dishonor of the cross in of itself is not what truly makes it tragic. What truly amplifies the tragedy of the cross is who it was done to. What truly amplifies the tragedy of the cross is that Jesus 
unlike anyone else the cross could have been for, completely did not deserve it. And one of the cool things about reading narrative, right, is, is we get to this place when we come to our scriptures and we can be connected to the story even if we're removed thousands of miles and thousands of years from it. Narrative, by the providence of God, the gospels that we have can pull us into the story and actually understand things because of the way it's written, right? And John, through his gospel, has actually been building to this point to reveal this foundational truth, that Jesus, the one that ends up on the cross, is the one that absolutely should not be there, that he is completely undeserving of it. We talked about it a couple weeks ago in Joey's, Joey's sermon about when Jesus was arrested, he, he spoke in a lot to the I am statement that Jesus made, right? And he talked about how this was a provocative statement of the time because it would have been a claim of deity. And Jesus does this multiple times throughout the scriptures. I mean, specifically throughout John. John is trying to communicate through making sure to historically show you these I am statements by Jesus that he is God. But then we also have direct claims of God's deity, with Jesus' deity within the Gospel of John. John 1, the word is God. Jesus is God. A direct claim, exactly how John wants to start off his gospel to reveal this foundational truth. And then later throughout the entire book of John, you see this relationship. John constantly calls back to the relationship between Jesus as the son and God as the father. John 5 Jesus claims that he can give life like the Father. He also says he can exercise judgment like the Father. John 10, Jesus claims that the Father and him are one. Through John 14 and 16, you have all these Trinitarian claims that Jesus likens himself alongside the Holy Spirit and also God the Father. John 14, Jesus says that belief in God is equated with belief in himself. And then in John 17, Jesus says that he left the glory of the Father to come to us. This is just in the book of John, but throughout the scriptures, we have so many instances that, that show to us, God's people, that Jesus really is God. So the question for us is, how does that make the cross especially tragic? How does the fact that Jesus is God make us, when we consider the cross, see it as tragic? Well, I think if we are able to truly consider who God is, what God is, then the only response as we look upon God hanging on the cross is no, unnatural. But the problem is God is so other than us that we kind of end up fitting him into this box of like, okay, there's God and then there's us, but we, we have trouble really considering who God is. So I actually wanted to write this out. I wanted to talk through it for a second because as I was writing this sermon, I was just so in awe as I was trying to consider God, that he would ever hang for us on the cross. So let's consider God for a second. God's eternal. He's set apart because he exists outside of time and space. Think about that. God exists outside of time and space. The very means in which we as humans quantify and understand reality, God created that. He exists outside of it. God's a creator. He's set apart from all else because he's created all things. Not only is, the, is he the creator of all things, he's the creator of every star, of every planet, 
every piece of material we have in this world, he has designed it and brought into existence. The very wonder of the cosmos that we can't even begin to fathom is but a drop of ink on God's paintbrush. The majesty of the stars, the skies, all of these things. But God doesn't even say that was the crown jewel. The crown jewel of his creation was humankind. It's us. And it's not simply that God created our bodies, but he's created everything within us. The very desires that you and I have, the personality that makes you, you, the very thoughts and giftings that each of us share, the love that you're able to give, the goodness of your heart, all of these things are created by God and subject to him. Without his gracious design, you, would ha- you and I would have none of these things. And without his supremacy, none of these things would be held together. That is who hung on the cross for us. God's holy. He's completely set apart. He's not like us. He is good incarnate. He's the root of love. He has no impurity or evil within him, and he has never and will ever be tainted by any evil. He is apart from us. He is apart from us to the extent that he cannot be changed by us. He cannot be counseled by us. He cannot be thwarted by us. God is wholly set apart. And we don't have enough time to really dig into, and we could do this forever. We could praise him for his power, his patience, his love, his humility, his control, his justice, authority, sovereignty, countless other attributes that make God God. But the true tragedy of the cross is that that God, this God who stands so opposite of us, hung on the cross for us. And there's no one that is more undeserving to hang on the cross than God. When we were in um, San Diego this past year uh, for the summer, the very last night we're there, we went to this Mediterranean restaurant with a, like all of us and some of the people, pastors that we did ministry with. And uh, we're sitting there, and there's these four young, uh, probably like 18 to 21 Muslims, uh, men, standing out on the side. They're just having conversations with people. They're hanging out. They're in their all their get-up and everything. And I have a lot of uh, very passionate uh, midshipmen, right? And it's awesome. They stretch me evangelistically so much. And so they get up, right? We're sitting here. We're having conversations with the pastors. We're talking about God. We're talking about church. We're talking about how to pursue God. And they get up from this conversation and walk over just these two midshipmen and start having a conversation with these devout Muslim men in this parking lot filled with older adult Muslim men and women. And they just start sharing the gospel with them. And quickly, you can kind of, I'm just like, I'm trying to have a conversation with this pastor. And out of the corner of my eye, I'm just seeing this conversation. It's very passionate. They're all talking. They're debating at this point, And they're talking about God. So eventually, I'm like, I, I should go over there and just, you know, help out and see what's up. And so I go over there, convicted by the Spirit. And I start having this conversation with one of the Muslim men. And we're talking about God. And he's bringing up all these problems he has with Christianity, poking holes, all that kind of stuff. And Eventually, I just get to what is like your number one? What's your main problem with the Bible? What's your main problem with the teachings of Christianity? And he says, the main problem I have with the teachings of Christianity is that you guys claim God died. He says, that's just, it makes no sense. It's illogical. It's unnatural. And I said, you're right. You're right. The, the response you have to the reality that God died for us is absolutely shocking. It is absolutely tragic. And in a lot of ways, it feels like it stands in contrast to reason. 
that God could die for us. I'll come back later into that conversation. But he made a good point. And it's so important for us to understand this, that the cross is absolutely tragic because God was the one that hung there for us. But it's not only tragic because it was gruesome and horrific. It's not only tragic because God was the one that hung on there on the cross, but it is also tragic because it was completely undeserved. When we look at the life of Jesus, we understand that he was both God and also man. And Jesus, as he walked through this earth, lived perfectly. Uh, The scripture would be on the back behind me, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 Peter. For Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The Bible's littered with the theology that Christ was perfect. So what does that mean to us, the fact that Christ was perfect and he died on the cross for us? I want you guys to think about, like, think this for a sec, think about this. So uh, I think there's one tragedy that happens in our world, specifically in America, that no matter what side of the political uh, spectrum you're on, no matter what your belief system is, uh, it's tragic for everyone. Everyone gets absolutely upset about this. And I think you guys probably are also thinking, hopefully, the same thing I'm thinking of, but it's school shootings, right? This is something that across the board, no matter where you land, everyone looks at it and says, that is tragic. There's an outcry from every single person that says it shouldn't be like that. But why? There's death all over, there's death that happens all the time in America. So why specifically when there's school shootings are we so at an outcry for it? And the reason why is because it's empirical to us that the innocent shouldn't die, right? It's empirical. Every single one of us, it's sown into the very nature of our DNA that those that are innocent should not die. It's unjust. And so the cross is absolutely tragic because hanging on the cross is the only person that should not have hung on the cross. He's the only one that did not deserve the cross, but yet he hung on it. So in the same way we we cry out at the tragedy when innocent blood is shed, we should look at the cross and what Jesus did for us hanging there. We should say, that's not right. It shouldn't have been like that. That is the greatest miscarriage of justice that there ever has been. So why does this matter? I said that at the beginning, I want us to consider the cross. And I said the first thing we're going to consider is the tragedy of the cross. But why? Why is it important for us as Christians to understand that the cross is tragic? I want you to read this quote with me. It's kind of long, but Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a great theologian, so I wanted to use it. And he's talking about something called cheap grace. And so before I actually start reading it, uh, cheap grace, it's, it's a prevailing heresy that's been around for a long time. I don't actually know if Bonhoeffer coined the term cheap grace, But cheap grace, as he's about to describe, is something that really takes away from us a bountiful, rich understanding of God's grace. So let's go ahead and read it, and we'll talk more about it. This is what Bonhoeffer says. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market like cheap jacks wares. The sacraments, the forgiveness of sin, 
The consolations of religion are thrown away at cut prices. Grace is represented as the church's inexhaustible treasury from which she showers blessings with generous hands without asking questions or fixing limits. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid in advance, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? And this is how he answers, is how he talks about it more. <clears throat> cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. This is what he says grace should be. Costly grace is a treasure hidden in a field. For the sake of a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciples leaves his nets and follows him. The grace that's preached in the Bible, the grace that's been extended to us through the blood of Christ on the cross is the opposite of cheap. It's of the greatest cost that you and I have inherited grace. And so it's absolutely essential. It's essential that we understand, we meditate, we think upon the tragedy of the cross so that we can understand the cost that was paid for you and I to be reconciled back to God. Lest we treat grace as cheap. Uh, one of my favorite texts uh, of this past year as I've been reading through is 1 Corinthians 6. We're not going to go there, but Paul is actually talking about sexual morality, right? And he has this line within it. He's arguing against the Corinthian church. He's trying to convince them, hey, like, stop, stop being sexually immoral. Like, stop using your bodies like this. And his argument is so amazing. His argument for them to stop isn't that it will bring even necessarily uh, physical destruction or that the world that's just immoral. It's not anything simple like that. What he says, how he argues is he says, don't you know the price that was paid? Don't you know the price that was paid? And Paul's saying, how dare you use your bodies for something so lower? Don't you get it? You're so valuable now. And he's saying, if you don't get your value, look to the cross. Look at what was paid for you. And so when we meditate, when we look upon the cross, we should understand this. This is where your true value will come. It's not going to come from you being moral enough. It's not going to come from you being righteous enough. Your true value in this life is going to come from you understanding the cost that was paid for you. You know, one of Cam's favorite toys these days is Katie's wedding ring. Yeah, it's a fun toy for him to play with. Uh, I literally, I wrote this analogy in probably like four days ago. And this morning I saw him just whip around Katie's jewelry just like this. So I was like, oh, it's fitting. But sometimes I'll walk into the room and Cam will be very quiet. You know, if you're a parent and the kids are really quiet, you know something's wrong. And you walk in and Cam's just banging the engagement ring right on the side table, right? And I'm like, whoa, Cam, don't you, like, don't you get it? Don't you get the price that was paid for that, man? Like, slow down a little bit. And of course he doesn't get it, obviously. But one day he will. 
And he's even starting to understand, okay, the ring is mommy's. The ring's mommy's, and, and it's important to mommy. He doesn't understand why it's important, but he, he knows it's important. And one day I'll be able to explain, hey, this is how much you know I paid for it, so that's why I told you not to do that. But even greater than that, because the value of the ring to Katie is not the price that was paid for it, but the price that was paid for it points to something. What does it point to? It points to the love that I have for Katie. The fact that I didn't just get her like a ring pop, right? It shows commitment. It shows the love I have for her. And the same thing is for us as we look upon the tragedy and the cost of Christ dying for you and I on the cross. If we don't consider the tragedy of the cross, you will never understand the depth of God's love for you. It's absolutely essential for each one of us in here to look on the cross and to ask ourselves the question, do I know the price that was paid? Do I understand that what was paid to reconcile me back to you, God? If we miss this, if we don't meditate and think upon the tragedy of the cross, then we're not going to ever truly understand the depth of God's love for us and the extent of his grace. That brings us to our second point, the necessity of the cross. Um, As we read through this story, there's a lot of prophecy being fulfilled. John says it a bunch, like, so it would be fulfilled, so it would be fulfilled. And I want us to consider why, why is this important, right? Why is John including all this prophecy being fulfilled? And even in the greater scheme of things, why is it important that prophecy is fulfilled in Scripture? Well, in verse 23 and 24, what do we see? We see Jesus dying on the cross, and we have this terrible scene, right? Jesus literally being tortured, and the soldiers playing around with his clothes. This is what it says, verse 24. Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. This is in fulfillment of Psalm 22, and it's a song of lament for God's servant. Then we also read in verse 30 that Jesus is given sour wine to drink, and that's the fulfillment of the prophecy in Psalm 69. We read in verse 33 that the soldiers don't break Jesus' legs, and that is a fulfillment of Psalm 34. And then we read also uh, that his side is pierced, right? And that's the fulfillment of Zechariah 12. And the question is, why is it important? Why is it important as we are in the middle of this narrative, in the middle of the climax of the story, that the scripture is being fulfilled? It's vitally important to see this. One of the reasons it's important to see this is to see that this was always God's plan. See, from the beginning of time, God had to have Christ die on the cross. We know this. We know that what happened in Genesis 3 with Adam and Eve when they chose sin, when they chose themselves over God, that that started a trajectory of a broken relationship with God. And what do I mean when I say sin? Well, sin at its core is a desire to make anything else, including ourselves, God instead of God. To look at God and all that he's done for us, everything that he is in relationship to us, and to say, I think I know better. I understand that you're saying this is good for me. I understand you're saying that you're enough for me, but I actually think that if I have this, it will be enough. I actually think that this will be good for me despite you're saying that's against your will. And that's what happened, right, with Eve and Adam. That's what happened. They take of the fruit, and what does it say? Why did they do it? They did it because they wanted to be like God. 
And so that's what sin is. And what did sin do? What was the problem of sin? What did it do? Well, it broke our perfect relationship with God. What's in Genesis 1 and 2, that beautiful, beautiful designed intimate relationship that we have with the creator of everything is now broken because we've chosen ourselves over him. Genesis 19, this is what it says. It'll be on the scripture behind me. I mean, the screen behind me. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken and out of it, you were taken for you are dust and dust you shall return. This is God saying, this is the consequence of your sin, Adam. This is the consequence. It's being reversed. The beautiful relationship is being reversed. The curse is now upon you because you've chosen other than me. And this is our problem too. We've inherited this sinful nature from our forefathers, and now we constantly choose other things other than God. So that curse is upon us, but God did not find it okay to leave us broken in that curse. So what was God's remedy, right? From the beginning of time, as he's bringing it and bringing it to fruition of Christ on the cross, God was not content with allowing us to be broken from him. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, same curse we just read about, by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read this earlier. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The entire Bible is leading up to this moment on the cross, and all of it points to saying this was necessary because of our sin. The cross is necessary because of my sin, because of your sin, and it's absolutely essential to get this. See, God, the cross is necessary because God wanted to reconcile us back to him. But here's, this is true also. The cross is necessary for God to be God. You know, as I was talking with that Muslim in that parking lot, and um, I said, okay, can you give me some of the, the main attributes of Allah? And the first thing he goes with is merciful, right? If you've had conversations with Muslims, this is one of their biggest worships of Allah. Allah is a forgiving God. Allah is a God who wipes away sins. And I said, wow, that's really similar to our God, right? The God of Christianity is also a merciful God. And I said, let me paint a picture for you, though, real quick. I said, imagine you're sitting in a courtroom and there's a murder, a heinous murder up there. And the judge says, you know what? I don't feel like, I don't feel like condemning you today. I don't feel like sending you to the gallows. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pardon your sin. I'm going to pardon your crime and you can walk free. And I said to him, I said to the, to the Muslim guy I was talking to, I said, is that judge a merciful judge? And he said, yeah, he is merciful. The guy deserved death, and instead he was walked free. And then I said, okay, I agree. I said, is the judge, is that judge a just judge? And he said, no, I can't call that judge a just judge. And I said, this is the necessity of the cross of Christianity. Allah is a merciful God, but he is not a just God. All of your sin, all of the sin that you've ever committed you're saying that Allah is willing to just wipe that away? Where's the payment? 
Where's the payment for your sin? Allah can be merciful, but he cannot be just unless he went on the cross for himself, for you to die. I said, that's the necessity of the cross. That's why God must die. And for us, we have to consider this. We have to look upon the cross and understand the necessity of it. Because if we don't, what's going to happen? We're going to become prideful people. You know what happens when we don't, we don't consider the necessity of the cross? We grow in our pride. But you know what happens when we do, when we live, when we think and consider the necessity of the cross? Is that we grow in our humility. See, when you actually realize, think about, and let it to be, work into your daily behaviors, the reality that your sin had put Christ on the cross, then there's no right response but to be humble. Guys, not a single one of us in here is righteous. Not a single one of us in here is righteous. Think about that. Think about how that should change how we act. See, when we consider the fact that Christ needed to die for our sins on the cross, we should be the most humble people. The cross is absolutely necessary, lest we become prideful people, and lest we forget what Christ did for us there. But, the cross is not just tragic. It's not just necessary. It's also comforting. And I think that there's often, there's two spectrums of Christians, really, when they consider the cross. There's those of us that kind of uh, stand afar from it, almost to avert our eyes, because the guilt and the shame that we would associate with it is too much. So we just don't think about it, or we think too little of it. The other side of the, the spectrum is the Christian that walks and thinks upon the cross in a way that burdens them, and they can't even lift their head up. What am I supposed to do? Look what I did to Christ on the cross. And they don't get to the second part of the gospel. They don't get to this beautiful comfort that's found on the cross. Read with me in verse 30. When Jesus has received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Here's the comfort of the cross. Three words, it is finished. What's finished? The Greek word for this is, I memorized this yesterday, I forgot it. Tetelestai, I think so. Tetelestai, and this was used in um, in Jesus' time to essentially, if you were a laborer, you would go to your boss and you'd say, Tetelestai, and you'd say, I'm, it's complete. The work that you've given me is complete. It was also used for uh, talking to a debt collector. When you had finished paying off your debt, you'd say, Tetelestai. And you would say, it's, it's been completed. And so Jesus is saying, it's complete. That's what he's saying when he says, it is finished. And the question for us is, what's complete? What is Jesus saying is complete? Jesus is saying that for those who confess their sins and place their faith in Christ, that for them it is complete. But why does this bring comfort? Why is the fact that Jesus is saying, your salvation is locked in now for what I've done? Why does that bring comfort? Well, I'll talk to the Christians in here for a second. It brings comfort because you can't wreck it. You can't wreck this. We read this earlier, right? 2 Corinthians 5.21. We are literally the righteousness of God now. 
You can't take off that cloak. You can't go back to your old identity. Christ is saying, what I have done for you, it's locked in. You are not going to be able to wreck this with your sin. There's a, a conversation I have so often with midshipmen on the yard, right? And they say, I just can't, I can't pray to God right now. And I say, why? Why? I sinned again last night. And you know what? I sinned the night before that. I didn't even tell you that. And this has been going on for my whole life. And I just, I can't approach God because of my sin. Like, how dare I come to him and act as if everything's okay because I just sinned again last night. And I say, you're not, you're not understanding the gospel. Your sin has no power over what Christ has done for you on the cross. Don't you understand what we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 21? That he who knew no sin became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. So what I say is, I say, what you're literally saying is, is although you believe in God, although that you recognize your sin, you repented of it, you can't approach God anymore. And I said, replace now your new identity. Replace that same sentence. The righteousness of God can't approach God. It's illogical. And so for us, what we struggle with, which so many Christians, including myself, struggle with, is saying, I'm not good enough to approach you anymore, God. But the comfort of the cross, the comfort of the three words that it is finished means that we can approach God with full confidence, with no shame anymore, because God does not look upon us in our sin. He looks upon us in Christ's righteousness. I had this, uh, another conversation with a midshipman. This was last year. He's since meeting with me. Uh, and he's Catholic. Um, he's grown up in a devout Catholic home, and he started coming to BCM because of one of his friends, and then he started meeting with me, and he said, God, the way that you guys talk about God, the way that you talk about intimacy with him and love and joy and the passion that I see at BCM, I've never experienced that. And I, I'm not even joking. He literally sat there for about like 30 minutes, and he talked through, these are the things I've done for God. I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this, and I've done this. Yet when I come to God, he does nothing for me. And I said to him, I said, you're missing it. I said, anyone that approaches the foot of the cross with these trinkets in their hands saying, now give it to me, God. Now give me your salvation. Now give me intimacy and your love. Of course you're not going to get it. The only way we can approach the foot of the cross is empty-handed saying, I have nothing to offer you but my repentance. That's the only way we can approach the throne. It's the only way that we can approach the foot of the cross. I said, of course you're not having intimacy with God. Look at what you've made his grace, something you can barter with, with these terrible, dirty rags. Of course you don't understand how much he loves you. Guys, the the comfort of the cross is that you and me, those who are in Christ, no longer, no longer need to work for his affection. The comfort of the cross is that God, even when you sin, does not look down upon you and say, ugh, again? But those of us who are confessors, who walk in repentance because of our sin, those of us, he looks down upon us with favor. And as soon as we turn back to him, he sprints to us. That's the comfort of the cross. And non-Christian in here, if you're in here and you're a skeptic, or you're in here and you've never really taken your faith seriously, 
I want to ask you, how are you finding comfort in this life? And is it working? Have you been able to build yourself up enough in your job? Have you been able to build yourself up enough in your, your family or your personality, your friends, enough to feel valued, the only value that can be found on the cross, enough to feel comfort and peace, the only comfort and peace that can be found on the cross? As we consider the cross and as we consider its tragedy, as we consider its necessity and as we consider its comfort, we will be transformed as Christians. And if you're in here and you're not a believer, as you consider these things, as you repent of your sin and give your life to Christ, you will, you will experience an intimacy and a future salvation that will not be found by anything of this world. So practically, this is, my, this is my hope for us as a church, Citizens Church. I want us to be a people who consider all aspects of the cross, who don't graduate from this foundational belief, but let it filter into everything that we are. I want us to be the type of people that don't have to uh, posture ourselves. The, the cross tells you the opposite. Let's be a people that confess our sins. Let's be a people that say, I don't have it all together. I'm trying to figure this out. That's what the cross does for us. Let's be a church that our identity is completely built on the cross. This is how we truly live. This is what John was building to. The cross and the future resurrection. He's saying this is how you truly live. Not by being righteous enough. Not by having it all put together. But by looking upon the cross and realizing that you have it together only because Christ has cloaked you in his righteousness. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm so thankful for you. I'm thankful for the cross. And even as I look upon the cross, and even as it breaks my heart, God, I am reminded of how comforting it is. God, I'm reminded of how beautiful of a God you've been for me, and you are for me. God, I pray that we as a church will never graduate from the cross, that we will never graduate from this, Lord, but that this will drive every aspect of who we are, how we relate with others, God, and how we relate with you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.